The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Penny, and I am the pastor here. And uh, it is great to be with you. And if you are new to us, if uh, this is your first Sunday or, or you've just been coming for a few weeks, you are joining us in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Psalms. So this Old Testament book is found uh, about in the middle of your Bibles. You can turn there. Um, and we'll be looking this morning at Psalm 100. So if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 100. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, you're welcome to use one of those. And, and if you need a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible. Um, that is our gift to you. Uh, we believe that the Bible is God's very word. And so it's important that we would actually have a copy of his word. And so if you don't have a copy, please feel free. That is yours. Just leave with it. No one will stop you. No questions asked. We are happy for you to have it. Um, because we believe that God's word uh, is, is the ultimate word in our lives. Well, as we've been looking at the Psalms, I realized in preparation this week that, that over the course of the last four or five summers, as we've been looking at the Psalms, I failed to say something. I failed to point something out. And so I'm going to seek to remedy that this morning. And what I failed to mention to you is the title of the Psalms. Now, we've looked at the titles before in the individual Psalms, but, but the title, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is actually from a word, a Hebrew word, that literally means praises. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that for the last, you know, few thousands of years, God's people, the church, has been, you know, getting it wrong. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Uh, Psalms is a, is a perfectly fine way of translating that word, and there are many ways to translate lots of words, but, but, but in its most literal understanding it means praises this is a book of praises that's what the psalms are they're praises and that's interesting when we think about the fact that many of the psalms have words in them that don't sound like praises right there's imprecation there's confession there's lament and yet even in the midst of confession and lament and imprecation these other other genres that maybe we don't often think of as praise what they are helping to do is inform us what praise looks like even in the midst of lament even in the midst of confession you see that's what the psalms do they are teaching us what praise looks like regardless of our situation and who it is that we are to praise and that's what psalm 100 is doing and so let's go ahead and read Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you would help us so that the affections of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, that the gaze of our, 
eyes that they would all fall upon you. For Father, there are many things that pull at our affections. There are many things that cause us to turn our eyes away from you. And we pray that in this moment, in this day, as we come to your word, that, that our gaze would be focused upon you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that uh, whenever I think about these psalms that focus our attention on praise, whenever we come across these psalms that have these commands to praise the Lord, my mind always goes to a work by C.S. Lewis. It's a little tiny book called Reflections on the Psalms, and there's a chapter in that book that's called A Word About Praising. I think I've read it probably seven, eight, maybe a dozen times now. It feels like every year I return to this one chapter and read it again and again and again. Before long, every line is going to be underlined. <laughs> but regardless, I return to it because of what Lewis has to say about praising. You see, he's reflecting upon how he viewed praise of God before he became a Christian. At the beginning of the chapter, he's thinking about that, and this is what he says. He says, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratified that demand. And we know what he's talking about, right? I mean, we feel uneasy about exalting the celebrity who thinks so much of themselves that they insist on referring to themselves in the third person, right? We don't want to exalt that person. Or the, or the soccer player who, after they score a goal, they're pointing to their name on the back of their jersey, inviting the crowd to, to chant his name, right? We don't want to lift that person up, the arrogance, the pompousness, the... No, that, that just feels uneasy, doesn't it? And rightfully so. Rightfully so. We don't want to feed that vanity, right? It, it just feels awkward. It feels strange. It feels uneasy. These calls to praise. But what about the call by God? I mean, throughout the Psalms, God is calling his people to praise him, to worship him, to bow down before him, to give him honor and glory. What about him? I mean, even our psalm, it begins with this call to praise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And then verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Those phrases, make a joyful noise, enter his gates. These are imperatives. They're demands, they're commandments that God is making. In fact, in the first four verses of our five-verse psalm, there are seven impertival statements. Seven commands. Verse 1, make. Verse 2, serve and come. Verse 3, know. Verse 4, enter, give thanks, bless his name. There are seven times where God is commanding his people to enter into his presence and to worship him, to bow down and give him praise. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, well, yeah, sure, there's demands, there's commands, but those are for other people because it says make a joyful noise. And and there is surely no way that anyone could classify what comes out of my mouth as joyful, right? Maybe some of you are thinking that, right? And so these demands, these commands, they're not really for me. They're about those people who have beautiful singing voices like Eileen or, or great musical gifts, right? That's what Paul, is, or excuse me, what the psalmist is talking about. 
that kind of praise, that kind of worship, but, but that's actually not what he's saying. Because that phrase, joyful noise, it's not talking about the pleasantness of our singing voice. It's speaking of shouts of homage, a fanfare. It's talking about the sound that we make when our team scores a goal or, or when you're at a wedding and the bride and groom have been pronounced, right? The pastor says, I now pronounce, you know, so-and-so to be married. And, and at some weddings, people very politely, you know. But at other weddings, right, they hoop and they holler and they celebrate and they cheer. I know it might be a little strange for some of y'all to do that, but that's what they do at weddings, right? They are celebrating, they're rejoicing at what they have just witnessed and what they have just seen. That is what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about us giving honor and glory and praise to God. In fact, even that word serve, it has the connotation of worship. It's not talking in the Hebrew about just our general service of God, but it's talking about the service of worship, like what we are doing, right? What do we call this? A worship service. And friends, instead of it making us feel uneasy that God calls us to worship, it actually should feel quite right. It should feel right because this is what we have been created, what we have been designed to do. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, begins, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That that is what we were created to do. That's what God made us to do. That the goal of our life is to worship and honor and give glory to our Father. To praise him. We were made to do this. And it is right to praise him because God actually deserves our praise. And that's what this psalm is telling us. You see, the psalm isn't just telling us these commands to praise. It's telling us why we are to praise why it is that God deserves our worship. And the first reason is because he is God. You see it in verse 3? Know that the Lord, he is God. Now, if you've been around the church for any time, you've maybe read your Bibles, you read that and it feels very redundant. The Lord is God. It's almost kind of like, well, duh. <laughs> no kidding. Of course the Lord is God. But there's actually something very significant about this phrase, the Lord is God. Look closely at verse 3. That word LORD is in all caps. And if you've been with us in previous summers as we've gone through the Psalms, you've heard me say that whenever you see that word LORD in the Old Testament in all caps, it is a translation of God's covenantal, God's revealed personal name. It's a translation of the word Yahweh. You see, that's what it is in the Hebrew. It's just four letters. We transliterate it, Y-H-W-H. -H. And this name of God, Yahweh, is the name that he revealed himself by. Like, think about when Moses was before God, and Mo God was sending Moses back to Egypt to rescue his people. And what does Moses say? When I return to them, when I stand before Pharaoh, who am I to say sent me? And what does God say? Say, I am who I am, which is a translation of Yahweh. This is God's revealed name. And the psalmist is making sure that we know that this is who he's talking about because in every verse, except for verse 4, he he's, uh, invokes God's covenantal name. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh. 
Verse 2, excuse me, serve Yahweh. Verse 3, know that Yahweh, he is God. And verse 5, Yahweh is good. He's making sure there's no doubt about who he's talking about. That it's not just some God, it's not just any God. The God that we praise is Yahweh, the Lord. Know that he is God. And this was important for Israel because think about where they were. Think about the history of Israel. They were always, it seems like, surrounded by nations and peoples who were serving and worshiping other gods, right? I mean, when they were in Egypt, there was the god of the sun, right? There was the god of the river. There was even the god over the frogs, Hekek, that was his name. He had a frog head. That's how they pictured him. So they were surrounded by these gods, right? And after they were rescued and brought out of Egypt and they moved into the land, they were surrounded by the gods of the Canaanites, right? And the Baals, and they were sent off into exile and they were surrounded by the Babylonian and the Assyrian gods, right? They were always surrounded by gods. And so they need to be reminded, they need to be told again and again that the Lord that they serve, the God that they serve is not the God of the Egyptians and it's not the God of Canaan. It is the Lord Yahweh. They needed to be reminded of that. And so too do we. Because, friends, the truth is, is we live in a pluralistic time. I don't need to tell you that. You know this. We live in a pluralistic time, and we are surrounded by many different religions. Religions claiming authority, claiming to follow God in the right way. Then there's the secular religions, right, of secular humanism, of nationalism, right? There's all these other religions. And then there are those who don't even claim, who claim that there is no God, And so in many ways, in regards to this, our world isn't much different than the world of Israel. And so we need to hear verse 3 as well. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. That there is no other God than him. There is only one true God. The God revealed in the Bible. And so if you are taking notes this morning, if you have your order of service open, Look at main point one. It says in there, we printed, that he is God. Well, you should should include a new word in that. You should write it in, in between is and God. You should write the word the. He is the God. The God that we have been called to worship, the God that we have been called to praise, is the God, the only God. And what is amazing is that he makes us his own that we are his. Look at the rest of verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now this reminds me of a different catechism, not Westminster, but now Heidelberg, because Heidelberg, the Heidelberg catechism begins with question number one, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on, but did you hear how it began? I am not my own. I am not my own. But I belong to God. That we are not our own, but we are his. Like a potter that forms a bowl or a carpenter who makes a chair or an artist who paints a portrait. The thing that is created belongs to the creator and we belong to the Lord. And this belonging, it's not utilitarian in nature. What's amazing is that it's benevolent. 
He said, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So notice what's happened in the psalm. The psalm began in verse 1 with looking at the breadth of creation, right? That the whole of creation, the entire earth, from one corner to the next, shall praise the Lord. But now it's becoming much more narrow in verse 3. The focus is now upon God's people. We are his. I mean, y'all, let that sink in. Let that sink in. We are his the creator of the universe, the king over the earth, the Lord, he's made us his own. And why? Well, before we start getting really full of ourselves <laughs> and start thinking, well, of course he made us his own. I mean, we're smart, we're gifted, we're talented. We are a place in a strategic place for the gospel to go forward, right? We're, we're influential, we're beautiful, whatever it might be, right? Before we start getting full of ourselves, remember what it is that God said. You remember he actually took up this question in Deuteronomy 7, and he said to Israel, I didn't pick you because you were the best, because you were the biggest. I didn't call you out of the nations because of how great you were. Why did he call them? Do you remember? Because of his love. That's what he said. Because he loves them. And friends, the same is true of us. It's not because we are so gifted, because we are so great. No, in fact, if anything, in Corinthians, Paul says that God takes the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. Right? He, it's not because of who we are, it's because of who he is that we are his. And friends, that is amazing that he would make us, you, that he would make me his own. But look at what else the psalmist says, that we are the sheep of his pasture. Now this theme of being God's sheep, it's throughout scripture, and we could spend a lot of time talking about our sheepishness. <laughs> in fact, there are whole books written about it. But instead of considering what it means for us to be sheep, I want us to consider what it means that we are his sheep. And what it means is that he is our shepherd. He doesn't make us his own and leave us. Instead, God shepherds us. He cares for us. We hear it in Psalm 23, probably the most familiar psalm in the whole Psalter. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, a shepherd cares for his sheep. He leads them and he protects them. He protects his sheep. Do you remember? That's actually what David talked about. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 7, when David comes and he presents himself before, before Saul to, to go and go to battle against Goliath, the giant. Do you remember Saul looked at him and he's like, dude, you are way too small. You're a little pipsqueak. Like, he's getting, you are going to get crushed. The giant is going to destroy you. But do you remember what David said? He said, no, 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 no. I was a shepherd. Now, now, that might not stir in us great confidence, but then David goes on and he says, no, I was a shepherd and I kept my father's sheep. And when a lamb was taken away by a lion or a bear, I left the flock and I went after the one and I grabbed the lion or the bear by the scruff and I struck him dead and I returned the lamb to the flock. You see, that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares for his sheep. A shepherd protects his sheep. 
even at the expense of his own life. And that's actually what Jesus said. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, not any shepherd, not a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you hear that? The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is what Christ has done for his people. The good shepherd shepherds us by giving of his life. And that is what Jesus has done. Because he went to the cross and he took the wrath and judgment that we were deserving and he took it upon himself to protect us, to care for us, to shepherd us. And so when we see that this is who our God is, this one that we've been called to praise, how can we not, with the psalmist, say with verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. You see, as those whom God has made his own, as the sheep of his pasture, it is right, it is good for us to praise him. He deserves of our praise because he's loved us and made us his own. And this love that he has for his people, it endures. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So last week I said we would see that couplet again, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's all over the Psalms and here it is. But look at what the psalmist says about this. Not just that that God has steadfast love, not just that he is faithful or that he was in the past or he is in the present, but, but that these qualities, they endure. They continue on, that God's love is forever. And some of y'all need to sit in that. And some of y'all need to rest in that. Because some of you, many of us, in fact, have experienced the fluctuating and fickle affections of man. You see, we've heard from a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. We've heard those words, I love you, and to only have the person who said them turn away, to walk away, to leave. But friends, God isn't like man. His steadfast love, it is not fickle. It does not fade and it does not fail. It is forever. It endures. I mean, in John 10, Jesus went on after he said, I am the good shepherd. He went on to save his sheep. I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Friends, do you see the beauty of God's steadfast love? It's that it's that if you know that love, if you have been made his, there is nothing that can remove you from that love. That God holds on to you in such a way that, that there is nothing in this world or the world to come. There are not principalities or powers. There is nothing that can remove you from his grip. Y'all, that is worth praising. That is worth celebrating and worshiping. That God's love, his steadfast love, it is forever. And the psalmist goes on and says his faithfulness is to all generations. And so you know what that means? It means not only does his love endure forever, but so too does his kingdom. His faithfulness is for all generations. 
I mean, think about the psalm began with a call for all of the earth, all of creation to praise the Lord. That praise would extend into every bit the furthest reaches of creation. And now the psalm ends with the furthest reaches of time. That in every generation there will be praise. Now that doesn't mean that that it will always be loud praise, that there will also always be millions upon millions, right? It, it simply means that every generation there will be praise. There may be years to come where, where the kingdom of God looks small or minuscule or so tiny that our eyes are, have difficulty seeing it and our ears have difficulty hearing the praise that erupts from it, but the promise of God is that his faithfulness will extend from generation to generation so that his kingdom will have no end. In every generation, there will be praise. Praise because his love endures. Because he's made us his own. Because the Lord is God. Now, we began this morning by considering what C.S. Lewis said initially about his thoughts concerning praise. His uneasiness about the demands to praise the Lord. But that uneasy feeling, it, it didn't remain it faded and dissolved. Because later in that chapter, C.S. Lewis described what he realized. And he realized that all enjoyments, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows with praise. The world rings with praise, and then he goes and describes the different praise that the world erupts with. A, a, a husband praising his wife, you know, praising a good film, a good, a good meal, even a rare beetle. That's my favorite one, by the way. But, but he goes on and says these things, and then he says, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And friends, that's what the psalmist is doing. You see, the psalmist has experienced God's love, and he has known that he belongs to the Lord, and he knows that the God that calls him to praise is God. And so he, this one who has experienced the joy of celebrating and worshiping and praising the Lord, he calls us, his people, to join with him and to make a joyful noise and to serve the Lord with gladness, to come into his presence with singing. That we are to give praise where praise is due to the Lord who is God, to the one who has made us his own, to the Lord whose love endures forever. And so, people of God, let us give our hearts in praise to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made us in such a way that we are created, we are designed to worship you to worship you because of your love, to worship you because you have graciously made us your own, to worship you because you are the one true God. And so we pray that this day and all of our days, we would make a joyful noise to our God and our King, to our good shepherd. And we pray it in his name. And God's people said together, amen.